especially as we take communion together after the message. So look forward to that time together today. Um, You'll notice in your bulletin, there is an outline once again, uh, and we are back in Ecclesiastes. We took a week off from that last week uh, and talked about, I went through uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, and for many of you, you might even call one verse in there your favorite verse, and so if you missed out uh, last week, I encourage you to go online and check out that message, just some work that God had been doing in my heart that I wanted to share uh, with the church, and so went through Jeremiah 29 last week, and now we're moving on to the last half of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going through the last half uh, faster than we went through the first half, um, and we're in today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll wrap this up by the end of the summer. There's going to be, by the way, in the month of July, a couple of weeks in which I am gone on a mission trip, and during those two weeks, we plan to have uh, somebody from the church come and share a bit of their own testimony about their own life under the sun, just as we have in the book of Ecclesiastes, somebody looking back on life and saying, here's some things that I've learned in my life under the sun. We're going to have that same thing from people in our own church family for those couple weeks in July while I'm gone. So you can look forward to that as well. But in the meantime, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. You'll notice the title uh, today is called Better. Um, and that's just a word that we see repeated a bunch of times. Here's, here's a reality. Sometimes what we assume is better is not actually better. Um, I'm a Minnesota Twins fan. And so last year, the Minnesota Twins were surprisingly good. They had a very young team. Nobody expected much out of them. But then they all of a sudden became a pretty good team by the end of the year and almost made it into the playoffs. And so everybody assumed coming into this year, getting all those young players back now with some experience, that they were going to be even better in 2016 than they were in 2015. So far, they are the worst team in Major League Baseball, right? So sometimes what we assume is going to be better is not actually any better. You might assume that a wedding would be a a better occasion than a funeral, but if you would talk to many pastors, you would hear from many pastors who much prefer to be involved in ministry through the ministry of a funeral than they do of a wedding. Uh, And you would say, well, that doesn't seem right. It seems like a wedding would be better than a funeral. And there's a number of things that are that way. And the same is true for us as individuals. If you think you're already quite good, you might be surprised at what is better. I've liked baseball for a long time. And so when I was in middle school, we lived in an older house, and the siding on our garage was just wood siding, and so my parents didn't care much uh, what we did to it. And so I loved baseball so much that I would play entire games by myself in the backyard by taping up with masking tape on the side of our garage. And when I, like, a strike zone, and it was oversized. It was way bigger than a normal strike zone could be, but I thought I was pretty good. I would play in my mind a whole baseball game facing major league teams, and I would regularly strike people. This is how good I looked when I played baseball, by the way. Um, and and so I thought I was really, really good. Like, if, if I, here I am in my backyard with my oversized masking tape strike zone, playing a whole game and just striking out major league batter after major league batter. And then I went to play against other eighth graders and found out to my surprise that they were actually better than the major leaguers that I was facing 
in my backyard because they were real people and the strike zone was much smaller all of a sudden. And I wasn't using a tennis ball anymore. I was using a baseball, right? And so we get surprised when we think, I thought I was such a good baseball player. And then I went and played against some other baseball players and found out that I wasn't so good after all to the point that I just finally quit in ninth grade and started running instead, right? So, so sometimes we have this, this puffed-up vision of ourselves in our mind. We think we're pretty good until we come to find out that actually we could be quite a bit better, right? Here's the big idea today. The big idea today is life is confusing, we are sinful, and God's way is better. When we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 now, you're going to hear more of what sounds like just kind of random proverbs, random bits of wisdom. And so it's a little harder in chapter 7 to find a cohesive theme to say, well, this is what chapter 7 is about. Because it's about a lot of different things. But one word that keeps showing up over and over again in the passage is this word better. And so I see that kind of as a theme that holds chapter 7 together, and so that's why the message is called Better. Like I said, there's an outline in your bulletin that might help you to follow along. If you're able to, why don't you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 in your Bible and then stand as we read God's Word this morning. This is a longer chapter, and so I'm going to read the entire thing now, and then during the message, we won't go back and, and look at every single verse. So there's some verses, the only time you're going to hear it this morning is as I read it right now. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this. This is a privilege. This is an opportunity for us to be gathered publicly with doors open uh, to sunshine, and, and for us to be gathered right here, right now, with these people, and that we actually have access, all sorts of access, to your word. You are the God by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, and you all things hold together, and you speak. You have spoken, and you have given us your word. And it is a privilege to hold it in our hands and to hear it this morning. And I pray that as we do that, that our minds and our hearts would be changed and, and brought more and more into line with your own heart and your own mind. Your spirit can accomplish that in ways that I can't, so I pray that that would happen now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is the Word of God. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Oh, I'll get it on the screen for you. There you go. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were these former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. 
who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Also be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You can be seated. That was a lot, and, and it would be maybe good uh, to spend some time unpacking each one of those. Some of those Proverbs are a bit confusing and difficult to understand. We won't have time to unpack every single one of those, but I do want to spend some time looking at the themes that come up over and over again. And the first one, it's this first section where we see the word better show up over and over again, and many of the things that he calls better are surprising to us. Stuff that we would assume is better, the preacher says, actually, that's not better. Something else that we would least expect is actually better. And so in the beginning, there's some things in those first verses that sound not very surprising at all. He says, a good name is valuable and more precious than ointment. We say, okay, yeah, I get that. But then there's other things that are quite a bit more surprising. When he says in verse 3, listen, did you see verse 3? Sorrow is better than laughter. You hear that and you say, really? So sorrow, like feeling utterly sad about something is better than laughter? Really? Or, or maybe even the most surprising in verse 1, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Right? A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. You can tell somebody that who's just experienced the birth of a child and the joy that comes along with that to say to them, well, the day of death is better than the day of birth. I don't really understand that. Now, we who are on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can see some, some truth in that that maybe the preacher in Ecclesiastes couldn't even see. 
mean, after all, one time a year, for a short little season, we sing Christmas songs, right? Some of you may be longing for that already, like, oh, it's going to be hot this week. I want Christmas. I, I love hot. But, but you're thinking ahead to, well, there's only this one short little season where we remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus. But over and over again, all throughout the year, we remember the death of Jesus, right? That as Christians, when we gather together, we focus on the birth for a short period of time, but all throughout the year, we have communion in our church once a month, some churches once a week, where we remember the death of Jesus, seeing good news in death. And so we can see maybe a little bit how the day of death, the day of Jesus' death, is actually remembered more and celebrated more by us as Christians than the day of birth. I don't know that that's what the preacher here in Ecclesiastes was thinking. But death can be very good news. We're going to talk about that more in the last point today. But then he says some more surprising things, verses 5 and 6. He says that rebuke is better than laughter. Right? I mean, most of us would, would say that I actually have a much better time laughing than I do when somebody else is calling me out on something. Like, who really wants that? Like when somebody says, hey, I need to talk to you about something that I've seen in your life. You're kind of like, ooh, I don't know about that. I'd much rather laugh and have a good time. But here he's saying that rebuke is better than laughter. And we can see that that's the case. If you think of a young man who has spent his life hanging out now with the wrong crowd and is just kind of squandering his life away, it is better rather than for him to spend the rest of his days laughing with that crowd that he's hanging out with, for an older man to come alongside him and to rebuke him. Rebuke is often better than laughter, right? Let's see how that's the case, even though it might sound surprising at first. The next one, patience is better. We see that a few times in verses 7 through 10. Patience is better. Now, we talked a lot about patience last week. and We don't have time to talk about patience this week. Uh, so we're going to move on from that and get that where we don't have time to talk about patience. Um, but there's so many things we could talk about in this passage. I want to get to some of the bigger things towards the end. And so we're going to keep moving. Verses 11 and 12, wisdom is better, right? He talks about wisdom being advantageous because wisdom is a preserver and a protector. He also says it's not bad to have some money as well. And then we go to verse 13. Verses 13 and 14, actually, a couple times we're told to consider the work of God. At the end of verse 14, it says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That's frustrating for us sometimes, that we don't know what's coming. Sometimes we wish that we knew what was around it. Like we, we've got a test coming up, and we wish we knew what the results were. We're, we have a decision to make, and we wish we knew which would be the best decision to make. We wish we knew what was coming in front of us, but often we don't. We don't know what's coming. We do know there will be good days and bad days. He says that in verse 14, in the day of prosperity and in the day of adversity. And in both, we're called to be joyful and to consider. What are we supposed to consider? We're supposed to consider the work of God. We're supposed to consider, though we might not be able to totally understand. I, I think this is, this is kind of fun to think about. We might not ever get to a point where we totally understand why God is doing what he's doing. But that's not a reason to never think about it. We ought to consider the work of God. That I don't get why God is doing what he's doing. I don't get how this is good for me in my future. 
but I am supposed to consider the work of God. A lot of times when we consider the work of God, we think that God has gotten it wrong. Like, this can't be what God wants, right? Like, like I've got to somehow straighten God out. God must have messed up here, and so I need to straighten him out. Where verse 13 says, remember that God is God, and it says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? God's will is being done. You might not be able to change it. You might not be able to totally comprehend it. But it is good for us to consider why what's happening is happening. Right? So we spend some time doing that. Now, we're going to move to the second section, second point. And the second point is this. It is better to fear God and live. There might be some things, if you were to go through this passage more slowly, this section, there's going to be some things that were even more surprising than what we read before. But the main sense that I got as I read through it is this. It is better to fear God and live. So that's how I summarized it. The first few verses really talk about this. And this is a theme we've seen before in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's this. People who try really hard to be righteous die. And people who are wicked and foolish, they die too. So fear God. Right? He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. On the one hand, there's a righteous man, somebody who's seeking to be righteous. And guess what happens to them? They perish in their righteousness. They die. And there's a wicked man who actually prolongs his life in his evil doing. Right? We've seen that. We've, we've heard that before in Ecclesiastes. You've seen that in the world, right? That, that there's these people that seem like they're doing it right, and yet they're the ones that die, and these ones who are who are constantly defying authority and rebelling and engaging in all sorts of evil and wickedness, they're the ones that just continue to live. And he's seeing that in his life, and he's saying, can't make sense of that. But I want to highlight what he says in verse 18. And so let's go ahead and look ahead to verse 18. In verse 18 it says this, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He was talking before that. There's this confusing section in verses 16 and 17 about not being overly righteous. Don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. So that kind of just walk the middle, like walk the fence. He's like, well, that sounds like horrible advice. Uh, to, to don't, don't try too hard to be righteous. You might die. And don't try too hard to be wicked. You might die. So just what? Is he saying walk the fence? I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying here when he talks about being overly righteous is he's talking about like a self-righteousness. That there are some people who are, if you took it to the New Testament, it would probably parallel the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? That there's these two sons and one is being overly wicked. He is taking his father's inheritance and going to squander it on reckless living. He's saying don't be like that guy. And also don't be like the older brother who sits at home and expects that because of his righteous behavior, the father should be giving him this stuff, that he somehow has earned his father's good grace, right? So, so don't be self-righteous and don't be wicked, but instead fear God. Have a proper understanding of God. You know, actually somebody who is self-righteous doesn't have a proper understanding of God. They, they fail to see God in all His holiness, and so they think that they can attain holiness and righteousness on their own. 
But if you have a proper understanding, a fear of God, a, a sense of awe of who God is, then you see yourself for who you really are. And you know that self-righteousness is not going to get you very far. So fear of God protects you from both, the wickedness and the self-righteousness, right? It is better to fear God and live. And then he says this. this is, I love verses 20 to 22. These are easier to understand. Verses 20 to 22. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And we can read that and say, Amen. I haven't found one yet. Surely there is not a righteous man who on earth who does good and never sins. Have you found that guy? No. He doesn't exist. And then this, verses 21, one of the ways that we know that there's no one in the world who's righteous that never sins. Verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Have you been hurt by the words of others in your life? I assume so. That because of the sinful words, the, the, the mean-spirited, bitter, critical words of other people, that you've been hurt. And he's saying, just take my advice. Don't listen in on other conversations because people sometimes are talking about you. And you're going to hear them saying bad things about you. Right? And you know why you know that? Verse 22. You know why you know that? Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I've had that before. Where I've talked about some to someone in a way that I wouldn't say it if they were right there. And then you find out actually they were maybe within hearing distance. And you're like, oh no, did they just hear what I said? Right? That feel, You've gotten that feeling before. The reason that you know, one of the reasons that we know that other people, one of, one of, the, one of the reasons that um, we recognize is that there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, is that we're the kind of people who say things about other people that we ought not to say about other people. Right? Or somehow surprised when somebody else says something about us. Like we've never said anything about anybody else. Right? So we get that. We feel the weight of that. We that hurts when we feel that from other people. And we do it ourselves. All right, have you ever had one of those now we're gonna get to this last section and then we're gonna get to the New Testament. You ever had one of those conversations um, where where you've talked for a long time? If you're somebody like me, this happens frequently. Um, you talk for a long time, and then you get done, and you're like, I'm not sure where I was going with that. You know, it's just like, so I just said a bunch of stuff, and I, I guess I'm really not sure where I was going with that. That's the sense I got as I was reading through and studying through Chapter 7. Like, he said all this different stuff, and then he gets to the end, and he's like, guess I'm really not too sure what I found. Except that we're all pretty messed up. I, I, I get that. Okay, that's kind of the sense I got as I read through these last verses. He talks about trying to find wisdom. And in verse 23 says, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Verse 24, he says, it is very far off, very deep. Who can find it out? He tries to know and to search out, to know, to seek that's what he's after. But then in verse 29, he says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out 
many schemes. It's like he read Genesis or something, right? Seeing that, seeing that God had created Adam and Eve and given them everything they need, placed them in this beautiful garden in, in perfect relationship with one another and with him. But they have sought out many schemes. They fell for the scheme of the serpent. They believed the serpent's lie and their relationship with one another and their relationship with the rest of creation and their relationship with their creator was all torn apart. And that's us. And that's the conclusion, really. That's the last verse of chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes. He's saying, I'm trying to figure all this stuff out, but I haven't found it all out. But here's what I know. God made man upright, and we messed it all up. That's what I get out of that. Okay? Interesting conclusion. And it does make sense to us. Because we live in a world where we, we try really hard to figure everything out. We're trying to understand, so what's better? And then maybe something surprises us. Oh, that's actually better? We consider the work of God even though we don't understand the future. Life is confusing. And in the midst of it all, we do recognize that we are sinful. And then we wonder, well, is there, is there any hope beyond what he comes up with? Because like is often the case in the book of Ecclesiastes, we don't walk away from chapter 7 with a whole lot of hope. Like, I don't, I don't get it, but everybody's pretty messed up, including me. All right, go home now. Right? That's what we get. But we live in a different time. We live 3,000 years later, and the big event that's taken place between when Ecclesiastes 7 was written and where we live today is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that changes things. And so what I want to do is spend just a little bit of time looking at three verses in the New Testament. There's a few things that have changed and a few things that have not changed. What has not changed in those 3,000 years is that there's sin all around us and all over inside of us. We're still pretty messed up 3,000 years later. Lots of advances in technology, lots lots more understanding of science and so many other things. And guess what? We're all still messed up and things are still broken. What has not changed or what has changed is our understanding of the way in which God deals with sin. We have a better understanding of how God intends to deal with sin than the author of Ecclesiastes had. Right? Because we have more scripture. And so I want you to turn, if you have your Bible with you, to three verses in the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Remember that the book of 1 Timothy is actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the guy that he was mentoring, who's now pastoring the church in Ephesus, and that guy's name is Timothy. This is the first letter he wrote to him, which is why it's called 1 Timothy. And I love the way that Paul speaks here, because Paul is honest. Paul is authentic, genuine, open, raw, and honest. And I want to be like Paul. Anytime I read Paul's stuff, it's like I want to be like Paul. And he said that that's okay. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? He's just seeking to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. I want to be that kind of guy. I want to speak boldly. I want to speak gently. I want, to, I want to be like Paul. But here, Paul is going to be very, very honest. And hopefully you can hear this and you can say along with Paul, yes. Verse 15, here's what Paul says. He says this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, listen to this, came into the world 
to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or other translations would say the chief. Okay? So, so what did Jesus come into the world to do? To save sinners. Guess what I am? A sinner. In fact, Paul's saying, he's saying, there, there's, there's bad stuff all around me in the world. There's a lot of bad people. And guess what? I'm at the top of that list. Right? And that's true. Don't we know that? We know that. Like, th- th- I love the honesty of Paul to be able to say all this sin around me. And sin is not just somebody else's problem. Sin is my problem. One of the rappers that I listen to says, go ahead and put me in line with all the worst sinners. Only difference is I'm tall and a little thinner, right? Like, that, that, that it doesn't matter. You can, you can have a list of the, the most wanted criminal people in the world, and they're sinful and rebellious against God in their heart, and so am I. Maybe the only difference for me is I'm taller and a little bit thinner, right? That in the end, that's the boat we're all in, that we could all hopefully say with Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You might think you know something of the sin of the other people and how much it has hurt you, but if you're honest, if you would allow the Holy Spirit to come and search your own heart, you see the wickedness still that lies there, that you could say with Paul, if I'm honest, you could put me at the top of that list. Praise be to God that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then we get to the really good news. Really good news in verses 16 and 17. But, but I received mercy. That means that Paul knew what he deserved. You put him at the list of, at the top of the list of all the worst sinners in the world. That's where he, what does he deserve? He deserves the wrath of God. Because God is the judge and God is righteous. Paul knows that's what he deserved, but what did he get? He says, I received mercy. That means God did not pour out his wrath on Paul. Why? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So it starts in verse 15 with Paul's honesty about his own sin, about him not minimizing his sin. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to minimize our sin, saying that that maybe our sin is not as big of a deal as somebody else's sin. We like to think that sin is a problem that, that other people have to a great degree, and I just have a little sin problem. But when we minimize our sin, we don't do any great service to our God. In fact, when we're like Paul and we recognize our sin for what it is, seeing it as as bad as it actually is, we stop pretending like we have it all together. We stop pretending that we're overly righteous, that we've, we've got our life together now. We stop pretending like we have all the answers. At the end of chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes, it's like the preacher's looking around and he's saying, everybody's so messed up including me. And it's like he just throws his hands up in frustration. I don't get it. What are we supposed to do with all this? And Paul is also throwing his hands up in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's throwing his hands up saying, look at all this sin all around me. And you know what? The worst of it's right here in me. 
I'm the chief. I'm the foremost. And he throws his hands up, but not in frustration, but in worship. Because he recognizes that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he gave me mercy. That in me, that, that, that he would display his perfect patience for all who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. That's what Paul is doing. We're sinners, and that's bad news, but the good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So some questions for you as we make this personal. Stop trying to convince yourself and others that you're not that bad. Stop. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Can you say that with Paul? Have you agreed with God that your sin is bad? Do you confess it to Him? Do you confess to Him that your view of yourself is like my view of myself in my backyard throwing a tennis ball against my massively huge strike zone? Because that's what we all do. We make, this, we make the target like this really, really big target. Like, look at God, I keep throwing strikes. Look at me. Right? I'm hitting the target every time. I'm striking out major leaguers. Those guys got nothing on me. I just struck out the side in the ninth inning in my backyard with my big masking tape strike zone. Look at me, God. When in reality, if we were to see the reality of the strike zone, of, of the, the target of holiness for which God sets for us, we would recognize that we most of the time totally miss the mark. And we're walking batter after batter, and we can't strike anybody out on our own. We have missed the mark. The target is much smaller than we make it up to be in our mind. And we've missed the mark over and over and over again. So I deserve to be yanked from the game. Bring in somebody else. I don't deserve to be in the game. But by God's grace, He's allowed me to stay in. Not because, not because He expanded the strike zone for me, but because He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness when Jesus came to live and to live a perfectly righteous life. So that me, like Paul, who recognizes my sin, can rejoice and throw my hands up, not in frustration, but in worship of the one God who did something about my sin problem, who sent His Son, Christ Jesus, into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Hopefully that's where you're at, that you're the kind of person who doesn't seek to minimize sin or define sin by yourself, but you agree with God about sin, that it's worse than you think it is. Now you have confessed your sin before Him, and it's something you regularly do, that you come before Him recognizing who you are, and you say, this is who I am, and this is what I deserve. And my only hope is not me getting it together and getting better on my own. It's in Christ and what He's done. That's something that you're wrestling with and would like to pray with somebody about. We're going to have a couple of our, or an elder and his wife sitting in this room right over here. You need prayer about anything, I'd encourage you to just go over there Talk with them, pray with them. Want to talk with me more about that? I'd encourage that as well. But this leads us into something we do every month as a church, and that is communion. Communion is something we do every month, but it is a time for us to recognize once again that what we ought to be doing is we ought to be coming 
together on a regular basis to remember death and give thanks for it because it's us who deserved it, right? And so we come to this table to remember that this is what we deserved. We deserved to bear God's wrath for our sins. But somebody else took it in our place. And that's what we come to remember. And so if the elders could come forward and prepare to help serve us in communion today.